Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cats and dogs, and barn owls everywhere waiting for a move up into a high-rise condo. It's Thursday at 3 o'clock, and you know what that means. Live from the Michigan State University campus and live from Chowchilla, California, it's Tea with BBP. I'm your host, Bill Van Patten, a.k.a. BBP, international superstar and diva of SLA. Right, Angelica? She's looking right at me. Absolutely. She knows I'm the diva. Yes. And speaking of owls, in the studio are two of the hootiest people I know, <laughs> my co-hosts Angelica Kramer and Walter Hopkins. Say hi, kids. Hoot, hoot. That's right. Is hootie a good thing? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. When people say Why you're not, a hoot, right? that means, yeah, when people say you're a hoot, that means a good thing. Like hootie and the blowfish. Exactly. No, no, no. I never liked them for various reasons, but but no. When you're a hoot, that's a good thing. It means yeah, you're funny and you're funny. clever. and We're you know, funny. Yeah. So you're hootie. High five, man. You're hootie. High there five. you go. All right. Hootie patootie. Well, welcome, welcome, listening audience, to our fall equinox show tomorrow, Friday, September September twenty second, is the fall equinox at one o two p.m. Walter, I hear you're having an equinox party. Is that true? Oh, am I now? I mm-hmm. guess I I'm didn't coming. know that. Oh, I'm ready. <laughs> okay. Now, I know we're not supposed to promote drinking on a show. I'm not promoting drinking, but I have to tell you that I just invented a new martini called the Equinox Martini. <laughs> and so I will just quickly give everybody who's over 21, you can pay attention. The rest of you don't pay attention. Um, but the Equinox Martini is, is equal parts vodka and Kahlua. And what you do is you put the vodka in first, and then you slowly, very slowly down the side of the glass, pour in the Kahlua. And what it does is it... The clue sinks to the bottom of the glass. And what you have is a layered martini with vodka on top, clue on the bottom. It looks just like the Equinox. Half huh. light, half dark. Just Smart. like the Equinox day. Isn't that clever? Very So smart. I'll be having one of those tomorrow. Anyway, so that's my new, that's my, that's my treat for everybody out there, my new recipe. Now everybody knows Equinox is right, is, is when is when the um, plane of the of the earth, the equinox of the earth hits the middle of the sun's disk, right? And the, the way the rays hit the the, uh, the earth's surface. Um, but did you know, did you know that equinox is derived from the Latin word aquinoctium? Did you know that? I did not know that. Something night. Of course you did not know that. Um, which of course is a comp- com- composition of equus, which means equal, and nox, which means night. <laughs> There's very little uh, that I do know, apparently. So. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I'm excited. These are like I live by these. I live by these these solar things. I, I celebrate the in December. I always celebrate the um, what do you call it? The um, not the equinox. Solstice? What's it called? Solstice. The winter. I knew solstice. something. Wow. I got it. The winter solstice. There you go. Well, I would celebrate the winter solstice because that means the days are getting longer after mm-hmm. that, and that's cool. And I celebrate the spring equinox. The summer solstice is a little sad for me because I don't like the days getting shorter. But hey. We live with it, right? So there you go. Anyway, so uh, the temperature here in California is a nice, nice, brisk seventy-something today. Hmm. Um, well, so here I'm it's excited ninety, about right? It's so, hotter you know. here. That's crazy. I know, I know, and I don't understand that. It's like we went from like hundred and something degree weather to boom, literally eighty degrees, and now it's seventy degrees. It's like hmm. it was really bizarre. So, and I think I think our summer is definitely over. All right, so let's get into our show. Um, our show today is about parsing, which I know has people a little freaked out. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, remember during the show, there is the SLA challenge question. I'm going to give you the question in a few minutes. And the first person to answer the question, uh, to, I mean, to call in and answer the question correctly, will win a prize. So keep your cell phones close by. What do we always tell people? To keep their cell phones close by so they don't what? So they don't what, Walter? So they, they don't, don't trip over anything. Yeah, they don't jump up and run the phone. I know that answer. And then they trip on a cord or vacuum cleaner or a bag of Doritos they left on the floor. Who knows? We don't want them to fall and hurt themselves. Um, same for the Diva Challenge question. We'll give that a little bit later in the show. Um, that question again, get to your phone. If you know the answer and call in, uh, Dustin is waiting for you. Tell him, hey, I'm here to answer the Diva Challenge question. I'm here to answer the SLA Challenge question. The number to reach us at is 517-884-4321. Again, that's 517 517- 884-4321. Again, the man on the phone is Dustin. When you call and say, hey, Dustin, he likes to 
have people call him by his first name. Um, Angelica will be looking at Mixler to see what issues come up. But remember, we are a call-in talk show. I know some of you are working, but I know some of you are listening because Angelica sees you on Mixler. So call in. What's the number again, Angelica? Let everybody know. 517-884-4321. Absolutely. And what else do we have today? Walter, we have the what raffle? Why we have a Walter? raffle for a book. Yes. While we're on the topic. Yes, exactly. So we're doing our weekly raffle for my new book from Actful while we're on the topic. BBP on language, language acquisition, and classroom practice. So if you call in, whether it's the SLA question, the Diva Challenge question, or just a regular call-in comment or question, your name will go in a hat. And then toward the end of the show, we will draw a lucky winner. We'll get a signed autographed copy of my book, winging its way in the mail the next day. So call in and put your name in the hat for that prize. I think it's kind of nice that they get a little prize like that, right? It's totally nice. And yeah, and it's really nice because so you all know, they're not free. I pay for these books, you know, so call in. This is how much Bill loves everybody. Yes. I had to order extra copies to do this and that's quite all right. Quite, quite all right. So, okay. So here we are. Um, I'm having problems with my setup today here in my home office. Um, It's really, it's just not good as we say. Um, I've got to figure out some system by which I'm going to just move my mic just a little bit. If you guys will just give me 10 seconds to adjust myself. Let's see here. That might help because Daniel says I'm not close enough to my mic. Um, when you're in a studio, um, those of you who don't know whether you're in the studio or in your home studio, you have to practically eat the mic. Your lips have to be up next to it. And it makes it hard because I'm in this little soundproof system here in my home. And it's hard for me to read my notes and see Angelica and Walter and do everything else. So <clears throat> anyway, wow. so every once in a while, my voice might might We're going to have a pity out. party today. <laughs> oh, wait, sorry. Oh, <laughs> Walter. He, can, he can hear you. <laughs> you know, Walter, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. Wow. As my mother ship. used to say. There's so. drama going on. Right? Right? <laughs> Okay, uh, I have an announcement to make before we get into our topic. Um, this announcement comes from Grant Boulanger in Minnesota, and it regards the second annual Comprehensible Midwest Conference, which is being held uh, next week. And here's the message from Grant. I shall read it because I have it written out, and I don't want to get it wrong. So Grant says, the second annual Comprehensible Midwest Conference is coming up in Ripon, Wisconsin, on September 30th, exclamation point. That means get on it. One of the early registration prizes, and he calls it the grand prize, of course, uh, is a 30-minute Skype session with guess who, Angelica? Yours truly, BVP. With me, yeah. So um, the people who early registered, their names went into a hopper and somebody was drawn. They've done a random drawing and they selected a winner. So I'm here to announce that. Jennifer Rukavina from Black River Falls, Wisconsin, has won. So, Jennifer Rukavina, congratulations. Um, Grant will be in contact with you to set up that Skype session so we can have some fun talking about SLA and language teaching and other things. Or we can talk about Divas. We can talk about Walter and Angelica behind her back. Maybe we should do that. <laughs> so, you'll be re- just uh, Jennifer. There's not you'll much be to seeing... talk about, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got so much dirt on you. I'm like a Hoover when it comes to the dirt on you, I'll tell you. So, um, <laughs> or Eureka, or name a vacuum cleaner. I'm good. That's how much shark. I, I want to be a Dyson. Shark. You want to be a Dyson? Kirby. Isn't that a German vacuum cleaner? Is it? I mean, it's very. Might be. It's, it's very I think the guy effective. invented it was German. I think the guy was, yeah. It's probably why. Anyway, so back to Jennifer. Back to Jennifer. Eyes on Jennifer. Everybody. So, Jennifer Rukavina, you will be receiving an email from the good people at Comprehensible Midwest with instructions on how to claim your prize. So I hope you're listening, Jennifer. If not, you'll get an email anyway. Jason says Everyone Dyson else who's interested British. in the... Say, say Jason what? Jason says Dyson is British. Oh, well, maybe. Everyone else who's interested in the conference, the CI Midwest Conference, is uh, can still register online through Sunday at comprehensiblemidwest.com. After that, you can register on site only, and that means the prices will, of course, go up. So register now, get that in before Sunday, and show up in Ripon, Wisconsin. It'll be a great time, I'm sure. Very informative and a lot of fun. So, got my public service announcement out of the way. We should do more PSAs, right? <laughs> 
I think we should start talking about parsing. I think what I'm talking about, well, I'm going to talk about parsing right now. I like it. Okay. Okay. I got to get myself set up here because I'm going to do this. The problem is I got my notes here because I've got to have some notes in frame. I can't just do this off the top of my head. And there's just no place for my notes in this little setup. I know, Walter. Here, I'll pity hold on party, to them right? for you. Pity oh, wait, party. Pity party, right? Pity party. Okay. So today's topic is parsing. Now, Nobody knows the trouble you've seen. Uh, Oh, wait, sorry. Walter, Walter, (laughs) Walter, Walter, Walter. What did Maud used to say? What did Maud used to say? God will get you for that, Walter, right? You know that TV show? (laughs) Yes. Beatrice Arthur? Okay, so just what the heck is parsing? Walter, can you give a definition of parsing, Walter? Uh, Yeah, I think I can. It's uh, Okay. Uh, taking a look at a sentence and dividing it into its parts and describing the various syntactic roles of the various parts. How's that? That's a Google definition. And so thank you very much for that Google definition. But that's not <laughs> How the is definition that a Google of definition. Par- that's not the definition of parsing we use in second language acquisition or linguistics. Angelica, are you going to take a stab at this or you want nope. me to just say what it is? Nope, please okay. just go ahead. <laughs> All right. So here's, Walter, I want you to write this down. Get your computer going. Here. Yeah, not happening. Parsing is the moment by moment computation of sentence structure during comprehension. So, Walter, you're looking at me flabbergasted. As you're looking at me, you're doing millisecond by millisecond parsing of my sentence. Um, which means you are computing the sentence structure. Now, why is this important? Why is this important to acquisition? And why should teachers care about it? Well, we got to back up and do a little background here. Everybody ready? Parsing is important because learners have to develop the ability to rapidly compute sentence structure. Otherwise, they can't comprehend language. But what's the conundrum? What do you guys think the conundrum is? Learners when they start learning a second language, don't have a parking mechanism in the L2 or parsing mechanism in the L2 when they start because they have no second language. How can you parse a second language when you have no second language to parse with? How can you compute sentence structure? So what are the solutions? What are the possibilities? Well, there's, there are two basic possibilities and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, but we're gonna treat them right now like they are mutually exclusive. Either learners use the first language parser and try to compute L2 noise with L1 computation. So, for example, let's say my first language is English and I'm learning Japanese. When the minute I hear Japanese, I may be trying to use my English L1 parser to compute moment by moment the sentence structure coming in so I can make sense of that sentence in Japanese. Um, Or the alternative is that learners might rely on what we could call universal parsing strategies. So instead of using my L1 when hearing Japanese for the first time, I might use some strategies or some mechanisms that are universal to all learners in all contexts that don't rely on your first language. Now, I've worked on parsing. It's in my model of input processing. And I've taken the latter approach to talk about universal strategies. I'm going to focus on just one today because we don't have time to do the full gamut of of parsing. But this particular parsing uh, issue is important for everybody. Okay, so Angelica and Walter, you both know about languages, right? Right? Yes, sir. Yes. Right. I'm going to claim no because I don't want you to ask me any more questions. No, no, you can do this. Okay, you know what subject verb object means, right? Nope. Subject verb. Yes, you do. Subject verb. You know what that means. (laughs) As well as subject object verb, right? Right? Yes. So English, English is a subject verb object language. Normally the subject comes before the verb and the object comes after the verb. That's why we call it a subject-object-verb language. Um, and Japanese is a subject-object-verb language. Normally in Japanese, in typical sentences, it doesn't have to be this way, but in typical sentences, the verb always, well, in Japanese, the verb always comes at the end, um, but the normal order before the verb is subject and then object. So in English, you say, Walter drinks water, but in Japanese, you'd be saying, Walter water drinks. Okay, that's what you'd be saying in Japanese. Did the two of you know that the vast majority of human languages are either subject, verb, object, or subject, object, verb? Like 90-something percent, 90-plus percent of the languages are that. This is followed by verb, subject, object order, right? 
Um, so between the three of those, those count for almost all the languages because any other word order is extremely, extremely rare. In other words, what's really rare is to find languages where the object sometimes comes before the subject in typical canonical sentences, what we call canonical sentences. So um, this finding, this thought led me to posit the following universal for second language learners. Because the mind is predisposed to have the subject always appear before the object, um, the parsing, the little mechanism, the little strategy I developed uh, and worked on was called this. Learners tend to interpret the first noun or noun phrase they encounter as the subject and agent of the sentence, right? Because you have, if you have a subject and an object, normally your subject is an agent. We I mean, it's the doer of an action. Okay, I'm gonna pull back from my microphone for just a second. And now I'm back. All right. Um, now, what does that have to do with teaching? What does that have to do with teachers and teaching? This is important stuff because as teachers, we actually intuitively rely on this universal strategy because most, that's what human cognition does, right? And for the most part, we are right to rely on the strategy and not to think about it. But then we have problems in acquisition because of the reliance on the strategy, uh, particularly in languages like Spanish, uh, where the subject doesn't precede the object. Um, for example, in sentences like me gusta el helado, right? Where me is an object, gusta is the verb, helado is the subject. Now we translate that into um, English as I like ice cream, but it doesn't really mean I like ice cream. And so what happens when learners hear sentences like this is they look at that may, they hear that may before the verb and they go, ha, in the moment by moment computation, they tag the may as subject of the sentence, followed by verb, followed by object. So they're computing the sentence structure wrong, which means all the elements of the sentence get tagged incorrectly. Same thing when they hear things like lo ve la chica, which means the girl sees him. But literally we're saying him sees the girl, right? So Spanish doesn't have a rigid subject verb object word order. And um, so something like the, uh, this, this strategy of taking the first noun or pronoun as, uh, as the subject or the agent can kind of screw up the way you, com you compute a sentence, um, which then again screws up your acquisition. Um, such a strategy also impedes the acquisition of passive, such as the cow was kicked by the horse. The cow's not the agent, right? And Walter's snoring over there because um, he doesn't like this topic at all. <laughs> what? You would have heard me if I was snoring. Come on now. I could see you snoring. I'm looking right at your face and you're like, your head is leaning over like you're snoring. Okay, now, why is this important for teachers in addition to that issue of computation? Because believe it or not, this strategy also impedes a bunch of other things. It impedes the acquisition of case marking in subject verb object languages like German, Russian, and other languages. Why pay attention to case marking if the subject precedes the verb and the object comes after the verb? You don't need case marking to tag subject and object. The word order is doing it for you, right? Um, and uh, that also impedes the acquisition of verb forms in languages like Spanish and French. If the subject comes before the verb, why do you need verb forms? Because the subject is gonna be there before the verb in, in many cases. Um, so now what can help parsing is letting parsing procedures build up over time with guess what guys? What? Reduced comprehensible input. By reduced, I mean not big, long sentences, but targeted, focused, short sentences that allow the learner to build up parsing mechanisms and also attaching the meaning very clearly to context. Or you can also throw in processing instruction, which was developed by yours truly. Processing instruction was actually developed to help learners um, get out of this conundrum of uh, relying on the first noun all the time. Um, and it seems from the research that processing instruction actually can help push parsing along in the right direction. And in so doing, it can possibly speed up the acquisition of various features. And with that, I'm going to tell you what the topic of next week is going to be. The topic of next week is going to be, does instruction speed up acquisition? We know it doesn't change acquisition, but can it speed it up? Um, so that's going to be our topic for next week. And I'm seeding it by that talking sounds about, really about parsing and processing That'll be super instruction. Interesting. Yep. It will be. Walter won't snore on that one, I bet. <laughs> I'll do my best. 
you all have to know that Walter does this to me all the time. We could be at a staff meeting. We could be, we could be at dinner and he'll just like, you know, out to the side there. He's, he's, right. he's quasi narcoleptic, I think, or something. Anyway, well, does anybody do that to you, I won't deny that, but I, I'm not sure that you've ever experienced that before. <laughs> I have no idea what you so, just said, Bill. But. He said I'm falling asleep all the time. I'm a quasi Yeah, he's quasi narcoleptic. Yeah, it's true, though. Yeah. Anyway, so if you have questions about parsing and want to know more about its wow. relationship to teaching, give us a call. I thought we were on the same um, team. Send us a note. Yeah, you, guys, I'm talking here. All right. Oh wait, sorry, we're having our own little conversation. I know. This is tea with BVP, not tea with Walter Angelica. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. I love you guys more than my luggage. You know that. By the way, I'm getting new luggage. We heard that so. last week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. I ordered it. <laughs> it's good luggage too. Armani. It's gonna last me forever. No, our monument doesn't make good luggage. Okay, so um, so we did a Twitter poll. We asked of people's concern about parsing, now that you know what parsing is. And we asked people, um, do you worry about how students are parsing sentences while you teach? And there were three options, yes, no, and what the heck is parsing? And we asked people if, you know, to clarify the answers. Of course, nobody did, because this is, a hard, this is a hard topic. People don't think about this kind of stuff. And this is like where the rubber meets the road. This is, this is where acquisition actually happens. It's at the moment-by-moment moment processing and parsing of stuff in the input. Um, and there's no way around that. Um, so what people said was 15% said yes, they worry about it or think about it. 22% said no. And a whopping 63% said, what the heck is parsing? So we've got a lot of people there who, who didn't know what parsing was. Hopefully they know a little bit more now and they can kind of reflect on what the issue with parsing is we think we're being comprehensible, right? And maybe we are, but learners have a lot of strategies to get the main idea of what you're talking about and getting through the task of the day without actually doing the sentence, uh, the moment by moment computation of structure. So a lot of stuff just goes by them. And you need to understand that so that, so that if you think that you're loading up your input with a bunch of stuff the learners are actually processing, they may not be because the um, parsing mechanisms haven't built up yet for learners to actually make those computations. Okay, we've got a phone call coming in already. <clears throat> I gotta take a sip of water. Can I take a sip of water before I take this phone call? Absolutely, you may. I have to because it's just, my throat gets so dry talking in this little microphone here. Um, and this really is water, you guys. This is not my uh, Equinox. Equinox Martini. Mm -hmm. I see, right. <laughs> it should be. Hmm. With you guys, I should be having like three martinis. <laughs> it's a drama filled show today. I like it. I tell you. All right, we got Reed on the phone. Reed, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Hi, hey, Reed. Reed. Are you Reed from Hawaii, yeah. Reed? I'm Reed from Hawaii, Reed, yes. <laughs> hey, Reed, we like you calling in. We like everybody. We like our repeat callers. Great. Awesome. Um, so I, I think this, uh, so I was just reading uh, your book, um, and then you talked about how. The teacher can walk in on the first day and just walk up and in Spanish say, you know, what's your name? And the kid says, huh? And the kid says, oh, is your name Dan? Is your name Steve? And the kid says, oh, uh, you know, Bill. And you say, oh, great, I'm Professor Van Patten. And so you're, 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 the point that you made there was that it's okay to start with this sort of whole chunk, you know, multi, you know, to, to the native speaker, to the provision speaker would know that it's multiple words. But to the kid, it's just this holophrase. It's just a sort of whole chunk thing. And I'm wondering yeah. if you think there would be a difference in outcomes if the teacher, you know, there's a sort of disagreement or different views on if the teacher should make every word comprehensible or if the teacher should make the general sentence comprehensible. I'm wondering if you think there'd be a difference in outcomes if we had different measures of, you know, if a teacher started with the whole the phrase thing and, and let students just pick out, you know, a word per long, per short. It'd be a short sentence, but they wouldn't know how the sentence breaks down versus another classroom where the teacher helps them break down every single word um, do you think there'd be a difference in outcomes? Um, I think it's, I think you'd get bogged down, Reed, because you, you can make content words comprehensible, but what do you do with function words? So for mm -hmm. example, that, that example I gave you, you know, uh, you walk into class in Spanish and say, me llamo el profesor Van Patten, como te llamas? And then somebody mm -hmm. looks at you like blank and I go, como te llamas? Te llamas Robert, te llamas Walter, te llamas Angelica. You know, so I'm asking you what your name is. Um, the problem with that is that that day, um, uh, is, a, is, is actually a function word. So how do you make comprehensible the fact that this is a reflexive verb and that day is not the subject, but it's something else? You, you, so well, you see what I'm saying? Between grammar, grammar and meaning though, could you just say it means you in this context? 
No, no, because it doesn't mean you. Oh, wait, which word was it? Uh, como te llamas, for example. So what, which means, how do you call yourself? That's what it literally means. So mm-hmm. di- different languages have different ways of doing that. So that's my point, is that, is that if teachers are preoccupied with making every word comprehensible, how do you make an article comprehensible? How do you make mm-hmm. a particle comprehensible? How do you make, see, the only thing you can make comprehensible, because comprehensibility means you attach meaning to it, right? Well, I think you can make mm-hmm. comprehensible yeah. are content words. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so, um, so that's why at the beginning, I think it's okay for, to operate the level of chunks. And mm. a parsing, a parsing will eventually kick in, and you, and uh, learners will start to break off some of those things. Um, I mean, you know, I, I just this idea of trying to make every word comprehensible just mm-hmm. just doesn't make sense to me because not all words sure. are created equal. Not all words are yeah, created. Yeah, no, equal. no, I get that. I'm just wondering. Sometimes students are wondering, like, is that an, is that does that mean no? Or like, sometimes they're wondering which ones are the content words and which ones are not the content words. So maybe right. it, maybe if it was just pointing out the content words and saying don't worry about the other ones, I'm just wondering if leaving it as these whole whole multi-word phrases that aren't broken down is uh, kind of delaying what, it, what otherwise could be quicker. Well, you see, but but in my class, for example, I just I don't go in and just do that. I mean, I actually have these phrases on the board, so you know, it's like a, a word wall, so they see them too. Mm-hmm. Um, that way, when they start to hear them, they're not. I mean, they don't. I don't come out of the clear blue sky and do that. I actually have them on the on the wall on the on the board. Yeah, so I'm they see the individual. Pe- versus, yeah, I mean, immersion programs where you just have kids like say entire sentences, like, "Oh, I want a cracker," but then once in a while, I'll ask them like, "How do you say like cracker?" And then they'll say some other word from the sentence, and it's kind of clear that they're they're not sure what the words mean. They just know the entire phrase. I'm right. Wondering if it would help parsing if. If there was a little bit more explicit, no. What know, helps parsing is to hear. What what helps parsing is when you hear different words in different contexts. So, like mm, for example, okay. like that first mm. day in Spanish, you're gonna hear you're gonna hear me llamo for my name is, te llamas for your name is, and se llama mm-hmm, for mm-hmm, his or her mm-hmm, name mm-hmm. is, right? And okay. so yeah. that right there is gonna start to break up things in the learner's mind. They're gonna unconsciously start to parse those things as, as separate entities. They won't quite have oh. them all down yet, but but they they mm-hmm. know that there's individual units there. Mm. Um, all right. And, well, thanks. The, you, uh, yeah. Sure. Good. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Thanks, have, Reed. Have good question. Yeah. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, Reed. Bye-bye, Reed. That's uh, Reed's asking an important question because that's that's uh, that's hotly debated along with a lot of the people who work with comprehensible input in the classroom um, about whether you have to make every single word comprehensible if it's okay to work at the level of chunks. Um, the idea is, you know, you experiment and see, but you can get bogged down in trying to make everything comprehensible. That's that can be tough particularly when they're not content words. How do you do that? Okay, um, let me go ahead and give the SLA challenge question because it's related to the topic of parsing, sort of. It's actually about processing instruction. So here's the SLA challenge question. Um, now, oh, people, this is a tough one. I'm going I'm to say right now it's tough. Oh, boy. So hopefully we'll see if somebody out there I gets think they're this. always tough, but you usually say they're easy. So this one must really be tough. So it says the following, processing instruction is a pedagogical intervention developed by yours truly, Bill Van Patten, uh, as a supplement, not as an instructional technique for the classroom per se, but as a supplement to instruction-rich and communicative classrooms. In the foundational study in 1993, what did we find that could be called the quote-unquote two-for-one results of processing instruction compared to more traditional approaches to try to tackle grammar or form in the classroom. Okay, so in the foundational study on processing instruction in 1993, what did we find that could be called the quote unquote two for one result of processing instruction uh, compared to more traditional approaches to try to focus on form or get learners to um, acquire language? So that's my question, the two for one ant. What what was the two for one results um, that we got in processing instruction? All right, so we're going to let that dangle out there. We're going to let that dangle out there and see if we get a taker on that. Uh, anything showing up on uh, Mixler, Angelica? Nope. No. No, nothing, nothing, nothing. I think we have some some more interesting questions on our email. Well, then we let's look at email. interesting questions on email. Well, let's look at email. Go but for I it. will say this before I get to the email question. We have an, uh, a short little note here from Andrea, who called in last week. 
and she was going to see Hello, Dolly on Broadway, if you recall. I do recall. And she said she was, of course, sorry that she couldn't fly you to see it with her. But BVP was there with me all the same. She sent a picture. Uh, She has a picture of her at Broadway with uh, the Hello, Dolly uh, brochure playbill? that says mm-hmm. playbill, playbill on the top. Yeah. And then she also has your book while we're on the topic. She took a picture of it all. So uh, <laughs> we'll have to post this to our Twitter page um, because she says, Bet was amazing. And while we're on the topic, has been thoroughly engaging and enlightening. She's been reading it on her way, uh, on the flight on the way to New York City. So I feel like all the episodes of Tea with BVP are being woven together for me in a handheld version. Thanks so much for writing this book. There you have it. Ah, well, that's great. Thank you, Andrea. Not to say, by the way, speaking of Hello, Dolly, real quick. Last night I was watching that movie, Wall-E. You know, the little robot? Yeah, Wall-E. Remember that little animated movie, Wall-E? Um, do you remember the movie he was enamored of? He always had on in the background and the music that was in his head. No. It was from the it was from the movie version of Hello Dolly. Oh really? Oh, and he's he's at the beginning of the movie when he's first doing his thing. You're hearing the 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 Sunday clothes when you feel down and out. Remember that song? Anyway, so all right. So what's our email questions, Walter? All right. Well, we have a question here from Lizette, and uh, she says regarding input processing, when you use the word here, H E A R, with regards to a word. Don't you really mean comprehend the meaning? What is the best way to establish meaning in the classroom? Could you repeat that question, please? She says, when you use the word here, this is regarding input processing, H-E-A-R, with regards to a word, don't you really mean comprehend the meaning? What is the best way to establish meaning in the classroom? Well, presumably, <clears throat> presumably communication doesn't happen out of context in the sense of not context as participants in setting, but context in the sense of the meaning itself. So isn't there some kind of thing you're trying to communicate and it's anchored in something? So a visual or some kind of context so that learners kind of know what you're talking about. And then so meaning is anchored that way. That's what I'm assuming, plus wall words and things like that. So um, I'm not quite sure what Lizette is asking in terms of, of how do you promote the comprehension of meaning. I mean, that's stuff we all do all the time anyway. So if you talk about a dog, you go arf, arf, and, you know, and people know you're talking about a dog, right? Or you have a dog on the wall with the word next to it or a picture next to it or something. Um, and so presumably that's how we establish the meaning of particular words that we're focusing on in some, in some kind of stuff we're doing, right? I mean, that's, that's yeah. And by here, I don't, I don't know what context uh, here appears when I'm using it, but you hear a word and you can comprehend a word. Those, they're two separate things. So you hear a word and then you comprehend it. You don't always comprehend a word just because you hear it. So, I, but, I'm, so but I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe I did say here sometime and I meant comprehend, but I don't know what context she's referring to. So sorry, Lizette. Don't know what that means. Well, is that if you want some clarification, just let us know. Either mixlerize it or send another email in. Uh, But there you have your answer. Please, please, is it? Or call. I always feel bad. I always feel bad if I can't answer something if I don't understand what 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 really is behind the question. So, Um, and there might be, and Lizette might actually have some other hidden meaning behind her question. Something else she really wants to ask, so she can ask that. So, so what else do we have? Well, we have uh, a question from Stephen, and Stephen says, I have a question about Bill's definition of language as abstract, complex, and implicit mental representation. I feel the need to ask, representation of what? Could you please enlighten me? Uh, Well, representation of language, which is abstract and complex. Uh, representation, all that means, representation just says that you have something in your head. And and so when you say of what, uh, I, I think you want like a concrete example. And so in my book, for example, I talk about subject of a sentence. What is the subject of a sentence? You can't give a definition like it's the doer of an action, right? Because not all verbs are action. So, so while... 
uh, Walter is eating or drinking, I can say Walter is a drinker or Walter is an eater. Yeah, he's a doer of an action. But if I say uh, Angelica is, um, it, it, if Angelica seems sad, Angelica is not a seamer. She's not a doer of the verb seem, but yet she's the subject of that sentence. And you can take a verb like sink and you can say the boat sank. Uh, but in that particular case, the boat is actually not the doer. The boat is the object of the verb. It got promoted to subject status, but, but because something sank the boat, right? So, but we all in our heads have some representation of what a subject of a sentence is. It's abstract. Uh, it's not something you define easily. And that, that's an example of abstract representation. Um, another example would be real quick um, in German, for example, there's such a thing as the verb second rule, that verbs have to appear in the second part of the sentence. Uh, so, for example, if Angelica says to me, um, uh, yesterday uh, I baked a cake, uh, or she says, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yesterday I baked a cake, she actually would say, um, yesterday baked I a cake. Or something like Can that in German, right, Angelica? Yeah, gestern backte ich einen Kuchen. Einen Kuchen, see that? So what happens is the German, that, that verb has to stay in second position when it's inflected. Um, if, she, if she says, uh, recently I have baked a cake, she would say, recently have I a cake baked. And the participle goes at the end of the sentence, Right. That would be something like, okay, so the idea is the, is the inflected verb, the finite verb in second position. Anything else, a participle, anything else goes at the end. This, this gets totally reversed in embedded clauses where all finite verbs in German, when it's an embedded clause, like, you know, I think that Walter baked a cake yesterday. You would say, I think that in German. You would say, I think that um, Walter a cake baked. The baked would come at the end of the sentence, at the end of the clause, if it's embedded like that. And so people give this rule of that, you know, there's a verb second rule. There's no verb second rule in German. That's our exterior description of something much more abstract going on, which involves verb movement out of the verb phrase, up into the tense phrase, and then up into the compromiser phrase because of feature checking in German and blah, 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 blah. Um, so your representation has this. So you, it, it's not that verbs have to be in second place, it's that verbs have to move in German out of their position in the verb phrase and up in a sentence. Um, and so these are examples of what's actually in our heads that's much more abstract and much more uh, complex than these quote-unquote rules that we see in textbooks. And so th that's what's in our representation, representation, things like that. How's that for an example? Did I give good examples? I think that was excellent. I think it was good. Subject one's a good one, right? Yeah, that's yeah, in my book. So. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I do have a so, question, a Mixler question here. What okay, mixlerize me, Angelica, mixlerize me, girl. I'm going to mixlerize you here. What about L3 parsing, so proficiency order parsing? Which could be the frame of reference to parse a sentence for those L3 learners? What do they do um, that's, that's debated. There's not a lot of work. It's, it's, it's actually in the last decade there's been work on L3, so third language stuff and subsequent language stuff. Actually, in the literature, it's called LN. N just means hmm. some number bigger than the second language, right? So, so third language and beyond. Um, there's debate about whether uh, you rely on stuff from your first language or you rely on stuff from the typologically most similar language, mm -hmm. right? So um, let's say you are um, learning uh, English um, and your first language is Japanese uh, and your second language is, I don't know what, German. So typologically, German and English are a little more similar than Japanese, right? So the question is, do you, do, you, do you rely on Japanese? Is that how you start thinking about English or do you think about English through German? As opposed to if you have Korean as your second language and you're learning English. Because Korean is typologically more similar to Japanese on a number of fronts, not all, but a number of fronts, than, than English is, for example. So do you rely on Korean then or do you rely, uh, or do you rely on Japanese? Um, or we just don't, you know, we just don't know how this stuff really works. It's debated. And so when it comes to parsing and processing, it's the same issue. Um, my, my take would be that um, when you begin to parse and process language initially in a third or fourth language, you still resort to universal strategies. That doesn't mean that something else can't take over. It can, but you start out with universal 
processes. That's that's my take on it. Now, other people might disagree. They do disagree. Uh, but again, there's just not enough in, um, and again, remember things like, like there's a lot of similarities around languages around the world um, in terms of word order and things like that, so. Great, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for that question on Mixler. So what else we got coming in? Nobody's calling in. I guess nobody wants my book today. I know, maybe Gosh. you can repeat the SLA question. It was a tough one. It was a tough one. Or I could just give the diva question now. How's that? If I give the diva question. Oh, yeah. So we have two questions floating out there. So let me get the diva question, then I'll repeat the SLA question if somebody wants it. Um, oh, you're going to like this one. This is good. This is good. Um, and in fact, I was watching a Mae West movie last night. <laughs> the great classic film legend Mae West, who was big in the 30s, black and white movies, and up until the early 40s, was known for her double entendres in a time when censorship in film was at its peak. In fact, Mae West was jailed twice for wow. censorship. Uh, what was West's comeback line when a hat check girl notices her necklace in a movie and says, goodness, what beautiful diamonds. That was in the film Night After Night. Okay, so again, the great classic film legend Mae West was known for her double entendres in a time when censorship in film was at its peak. What was Mae West's comeback line when a hat check girl says to her in the movie Night After Night, goodness, what beautiful diamonds question is, what did Mae West say back to her? You can Googleize that. That's an easy one. Okie dokies. So should I get the SLA question one more time too? Just I yes, think so. Please. Okay. So processing instruction. If Eric Herman is listening, he could call in on this one. He's probably not listening. Uh, processing instruction is a pedagogical intervention developed by yours truly as a supplement to acquisition rich and communicative classrooms. In the foundational study in 1993, what did we find that could be called the two-for-one result of processing instruction compared to more traditional interventions? There we go. That was, that was, that was an earth-shaking finding. I remember when I first presented that paper back in 1991 at a symposium, huh. jaws dropped. Huh. Jaws dropped. Jaws dropped. There we go. Did jaws drop? Okay. Jaws dropped. <laughs> People, people's mouths were open because of the two for one thing that was going on. Hmm. And I said, people, people stop me at conferences later and say, you know, because we've published a lot of research on processing instructions since, and they go, I still can't believe these findings you get on this. And I go, well, okay, yeah, well, that's okay. All right. So, any other questions? Nobody's calling in. Nobody's, I'm going to keep the book for myself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give it away at the book, at the, I don't know where. Well, I'm going to give it to somebody Reed. on the he street. Yeah, I'll give Reed the book. But he's give it away to Walter or Angelica, see? There you go. And I, <laughs> hey, I, I have get a, a question. I, I have a question. I get a little message here. Give it to Luca. No, Luca. I'm sorry, Luca. <laughs> I'll, bring a book, I'll bring a book, Luca, when I come to East Lansing. But now I have to bring a book to everybody, and I don't have any copies. So. That's all right. I got it out of the library, so we're good. Well, and now you can download it. Now it's available oh, yeah, by as the way, an e-book. Oh, it's available ebook and it's like half the price. So yeah. if you if you're if you don't like the price and you don't like paying the mailing costs, it is now available as an ebook. So see that should have been go. available for Dudu, but I guess he just won his last week, so it's okay. I have a, a note here from Elaine. This is just more on a personal level. Elaine says All right. Last week you mentioned something about AATSP. What is it that you need people for? So I think Elaine is volunteering to be one of your inputs. So I will pass along her email to you. And uh, <laughs> poor Elaine has so no Walter, idea what she's doing. Walter, Walter has definitively given up his spot as an in backup singer. <laughs> input. Okay. All right. Go ahead, Walter. Yeah. But I do actually have a, a question here. So, okay. Um, Give me a question. Shoot me a question. I've got a question. And the question is the following it doesn't have anything to do with today's topic, but. That's all right. That's okay. We, we, we like don't to, care. It's okay. It's we okay. like to bring up questions as people send them in. So this one is from Aaron, and it's a little bit long. So is I'm, that Aaron E R I N or Aaron A A R O N? E R I N. I like to, I like to know these things. You know. Yes, E R I N. Okay. And Aaron. Because I pronounce them the same. Don't you pronounce them the same? I do pronounce them the same. Though Matt, my dear colleague, always tells me that they're not pronounced the same. They're pronounced differently. I would agree because yeah, one Matt. is Aaron and one is Aaron. He would say it's he, he, Aaron and Aaron. I don't know. Whatever. Whatever. 
Anyway, go ahead. So what's, <laughs> what's Aaron's question? Uh, the Divine Miss Aaron. Yes. She asks if there is any good criticism of the integrated performance assessment that you can recommend. She says, I want to be on the bandwagon whenever possible, but in language teacher social media world, it seems to me that the integrated piece is getting placed on a level where it seems to imply that we magically know more about a learner's abilities because the task has all three modes integrated than if we just had three separate well-designed tasks. I obviously see that it makes sense for the sake of authenticity to put tasks together that go together, but sometimes native speakers do something in one communicative mode and then they're done, right? So I'm not anti-IPA, but I think there might be an anti... uh, Sorry, I think I might be anti-IPA addiction. So any thoughts on the IPA, the Integrated Performance Assessment? No, uh, because at least from the viewpoint of her question, which is about criticism of it, um, there is like this much research. And can you see any light between my fingers, Walter? Nope. So that's how much research there is on IPAs and what they do and, and, and so on. And so um, I don't know of any criticisms about the IPAs out there in the literature anywhere in the language teaching world. Um, that could just be my ignorance, but I don't know of any because uh, I just don't. I think that it's one of those things that has been uh, promulgated um, and because um, it makes sense to a lot of people who are looking for alternatives to testing. And uh, so people have been like jumping on that and doing it, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but then there's been no critical discussion of what actually is measured, how it's measured, how those things actually reflect on things and so on. So, um, so I'm sorry, Aaron, I have no place to send you for criticisms on that. Somebody else might call in or email or mix the rise and say they have something on that. So we'll, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for you, Aaron. Okay, we've got a call on the line. We've got, uh, looks like Mary Fred. Mary Fred, are you on the line? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah. I can hear you just great. Hello? Where are you, call- where are you calling from, Mary Fred? I'm from St. Paul. From St. Paul. Okay, so from the other side of the river or something, right? Or I don't know. Exactly how does Minneapolis-St. Paul work? Is- oh, sometimes the river splits us. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it divides Minneapolis from Minneapolis. It kind of depends on where you are. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because I've flown in there enough times and I've given talks in Minneapolis and I never quite figured out what the river really, really does. Okay. So um, here we go. You're going to. Right, 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 right. Okay. So it looks like you're calling about the Diva Challenge question, correct? Yes. Okay. Then let me repeat the question for everybody and then you can answer it and see if you win a prize. Okay, the great classic film legend Mae West was known for her double entendres in a time when censorship in film was at its peak. What was West's comeback line when a hat check girl says to her, uh, noticing her necklace and says to her, goodness, what beautiful diamonds. What did Mae West say? Goodness had nothing to do with it, dearie. That's exactly Yay. what she said. Bang, ding, 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 ding. There you go, exactly. So goodness, what beautiful diamonds. And then Mae West said, Goodness had nothing to do with it, dearie. So uh, great. That was a great. That was actually Mae West's debut movie, by the way, too. So, huh. well, congratulations, Mary Fred. You win a prize, and your name is going to go in the hat for possibly uh, a book. How's that sound? Yay! That sounds good. Okay. Okay. I got another caller line, so I have to push along. So I'm going to take the next call. I, well, actually, it's coming up. Um, so it's not quite in my queue yet. So I don't know if the caller is actually on the mic yet. So do we have any mixlers or email questions, um, while we wait for this call to come through? Bye, Mary Fred, by the way. Yes, <laughs> Thanks bye. for calling. Thank <laughs> I do have a, uh, question from email from Lee. Lee says, does studying vocabulary as separate paired items with lists, flashcards, Quizlet, etc., help speed up vocabulary or language acquisition? Or would learners be better off simply spending their time with meaningful input, say listening to or reading stories, etc., rather than spending time memorizing vocabulary separately? Yeah, memorizing vocabulary separately doesn't seem to be the route to go. Um, seeing vocabulary in isolation um, can help them find word boundaries in the input stream. That's what it's good for. But memorizing words itself does not necessarily speed up acquisition. 
Um, I'm not an expert in vocabulary acquisition. I've read some, th some things about, and there's some debate about out there about what kinds of things work and don't work and what can help acquisition of vocabulary and what can't. Um, but memorizing is one I know is not high on the list of anybody's stuff in research about that actually helps acquisition of vocabulary itself and flashcards and things like that. So, okay, we got our call on the line. Here it is. Joe, are you there? Yes, I am. Hey, Joe, where are you calling from? Uh, I'm calling from Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, well, welcome to TWSBP, your first time caller, aren't you? Uh, no, I called a few weeks ago um, for the DO challenge question or the second one. Oh, okay. I, I don't remember that. I'm so sorry, Joe. So what are you calling, <laughs> what okay. you calling about? What's up? What do, what's up? What are you calling um, about? So I had a question, and I'm not sure exactly how much this falls under the heading for today, but um, I, I teach Latin, and I've noticed a number of times people trying to focus on, like, getting the temporal endings in Latin and getting students to, to notice them and, you know, understand what they, the meaning they convey. And I've, had, um, I've heard people say that they use a lot of adverbs for temporal adverbs to help make the um, – the meaning clearer. Do you think that's a good practice or is that going to, is it like a crutch that's going to inhibit them from ever picking up? Not, that's not partially, ever, re that, that's partially related to today's topic. Um, yeah, because what, what adverbs do there, there's another, in my model of input processing, for example, there's an, uh, another strategy or principle called the lexical preference principle. And what that says is that adverbs and content words can get in the way of processing and, and, and learning other things. Um, because you rely on those for meaning as opposed to the, the you know, verb endings or case endings and things like that. Um, I've refined that to actually reflect more. Um, I've actually refined that to reflect more what actually happens in acquisition. And what, what, um, it, what actually happens with learners is the following, is that you have to have those adverbs well entrenched in your lexicon in order to match anything of similar meaning to them. So in other words, vocabulary has to precede the acquisition of um, verb endings, for example, in your particular case of Latin. So, oh, okay. um, so in other words, I have to have really robust representations of yesterday, last week, two days ago, a year and a half ago, and things like that. I have to have those really, really well represented in my head as words so that I can then map on past tense endings or future endings or whatever onto verbs. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. So, 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 so they are a crutch. On the one hand, you can look at them as a crutch, but by the other hand, they're actually absolutely necessary, but not, but not the way you're talking about. So for example, if, if, if you think that by saying yesterday I went and that the yesterday is gonna help them hear the went, it's not. They have to have yeah. yesterday in their head already as a word firmly established so that then the wet part can start to be processed on its own. So it would be a good practice to add more temporal adverbs to the stuff that I give my, the input I give my students, um, yes. especially in the lower levels. Okay. Yes. Would that hold yes. true and, for, and, and, um, and, pers sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, would that hold true for personal endings as well? Yes, it does. Um, with particularly okay. if you over if you use overuse subject pronouns, yes. Okay. Huh. Okay. Well, it's gonna take a while. Much. Yeah. Okay. You're welcome, yeah. Joe. <laughs> Bye. That's uh, Joe's asking a really good question. Just so everybody knows, real quick before we move on, that um, there, the, things are much more complicated than we we can get into a show like this, um, and actually some of that will probably come up next week when we talk about does instruction speed up acquisition or can we can we speed up uh, can we speed up acquisition through something that we do? Thanks for calling, um, Joe. We're a yes. little behind today. I guess so. Where are we behind? We're not behind. We're no, not no, behind. No, are we no, behind? Walter, no, Walter and I with with saying farewell to the callers. Well, it's just unclear <laughs> when the caller is actually done, I guess. <laughs> that's all right. That's, the, that's, that's, that's our technology not working in our favor. Okay, are we ready for a book drawing? We've had a couple of callers, so someone's going to win a book today. We've had three or four callers, so that's good. So, Walter, who's pulling? Who's pulling the Walter. name? Walter Angelica. It's Walter's turn. All right, come I'm on, Wally. Choose. Let's see. Make who it a good it is. one. Come on, Wally. Make it a good one. Come on, Wally. And the winner is Joe from Georgia. Hey, Joe from Georgia. Good for Excellent. you. Excellent. Uh, Last caller wins. He's going to receive a signed copy 
of my book while we're on the topic. So thank you for calling in, Joe. Thanks, Reed. Thanks, Mary. Thank everybody who's called in today. Um, hopefully, uh, we'll get a topic next week that's going to just fire people up to call in, and they're going to want to um, try to win a book. So good for you, Joe. Okay, any any last-minute questions from Mixler or um, from email? Walter, you got anything there for me? I've got a last-minute question, actually. It comes from Bess. That sounds good. And Bess, Bess asks the following question. Does interpersonal communication have to be between students? Someone told me this summer that teacher-student communication does not count as far as Actful is concerned. Huh? <laughs> That's my answer. Huh? Interpersonal means between two people. So, of course, if it's between two, interpersonal communication could be between two students, a teacher and a student, between a student and somebody on talk of ride or in a chat room. It, it's just, it's an interchange between two people. So, I don't understand why someone's restricting that to mean two students. I don't think Actful would say that. Um, I really, because. Interpersonal communication and more broadly defined, for example, in proficiency guidelines, as well as the way it's looked at in terms of some of the standards is that um, it just means between two people, as far as I can tell. So that might be a particular person's either miss those two people who are talking to each other about what interpersonal means may not mean the same thing. And then they might be miscommunicating or the person who says that interpersonal means between two students is just reading something wrong or interpreting something wrong. Um, out there, but I could be wrong. I don't think so. Um, my, I just looked at that recently for some other reason. And I don't remember seeing that interpersonal is student, student, um, by definition. Now in practice, it may be that way because who are the main bulk of people you have in a classroom? Students. So a lot of interpersonal communication happens between students, but that doesn't mean there isn't interpersonal communication between students and teacher as well. So is that, does that sound right to you guys? Agreed. Yes, I was yeah, kind of so surprised I'm... to see that that question actually, um, but but I would agree one hundred percent with what you just said. Well, you know, this is this is uh, this is typical sometimes when when a, a construct or concept comes about and it becomes part of the zeitgeist out there. It gets transformed, and I'll just say this real quickly: that's what happened to the term communicative language teaching. Um, the way communicative language teaching was originated did not mean what most people think it means. And it got transformed very quickly, partly because of what publishers for textbooks did, partly because people were looking for little quick one phrase ways uh, of defining what communicative language teaching is. And everybody thought it meant getting students to talk, making students talk. That's what communicative language teaching is about. And that's not what it was about. It was basically about putting meaning at the center of the classroom and not grammatical form. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean making students talk, although students can certainly talk in a communicative classroom. But, but again, that's an example of how things um, get distorted and changed through the zeitgeist. Okay. Hey, will, um, you Angelica. Give us, will you give us the answer for the SLA challenge question? Sure. I'm gonna, I was going to give it right now. Real yeah, quick. You ready for this? Yes, please. So in the foundational study in 1993 with Van Patten and Calderno, what did we find that could be called the two-for-one result of processing instruction, unlike traditional approaches, is that with processing instruction, you get both improved processing, i.e. comprehension, and production in the control situations. With traditional instruction, you got some kind of controlled uh, controlled output, but no gains in comprehension. So the two-for-one is comprehension and production. So there you go. I I'm like good. it. Thank there you. There you have it. All right. Go read Van Patten and Kadir. No, it's an important study. <laughs> All right. Trying to do wrap up and say our acknowledgments. Here we go. Oh my God, the time is ticking. We want to thank our technical producer, Daniel Trego, our media producer, Luca Giopponi, our talented and trusted call handler and, and general cow roper, Dustin DeFelice, and of course, our able bodied duo, Chad Bowsley and Ryan Steck, who are our interns this semester and our, our two new assistant production managers. We want to thank the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University, especially our Dean Christopher Long. And as a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed in this program do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters, any of our sponsors, or any other official entity of Michigan State University. And of course, we thank 
all of our listeners out there as well. Tune in next week. Call in. Try to win a book. Our topic will be, does instruction in any way speed up acquisition? I have a lot to say about that. There's a ton of research on that. And it's hotly debatable. So, Angelica, Walter, say goodbye to everybody. Tell them happy acquisition. We'll see you all next week. Bye, everybody. Viel Spaß beim Sprachenlernen. Bis nächste Woche. Yeah, that too. And don't forget the Equinox.